Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's open up our Bibles, if you will, to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, that's where we're going to be for the entirety of the lesson. We're going to begin in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I really do want to encourage all of us to be holding this epistle in our hands, be looking at it with our eyes, because I want us, as best we possibly can, to put ourselves in the shoes of Timothy for these next few minutes as we work through this great epistle. And as you're turning to 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'll just join in with the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody this morning. So glad that you are here. We're just delighted to have a number of guests in our midst today. And uh, you honor us by your presence. And more importantly than that, you honor the Lord. Thank you so much for being here. And I hope and pray that as we've sung and as we've prayed, and especially now uh, in this part of the worship where I'll be doing a lot of the talking, I hope that I'll say things that will be encouraging and helpful and uh, instructive from God's Word. That's what this part of our worship is all about. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, read with me please, beginning in verse 6. In 2 Timothy 4 and in verse 6, I'm reading from the New American Standard this morning, so a little bit different than what you're used to me preaching from. There we read, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. I want you to picture, if you will, in your mind's eye, a cold, damp, and dark prison cell. And I need you to not be thinking of a modern day prison cell that is plush with all of the conveniences and amenities of modern day trappings. I don't need you to be thinking about there being a a nice mattress to sleep on or maybe a nice sink over here in the corner to go and wash your hands. No, I need you to be thinking about an ancient prison cell where the only mattress you can sleep on is a dirt floor in the corner. And the idea of somehow, you know, having some personal hygiene and some things available for that, all of that is a foreign concept as well because there is no sink and there is no toilet. In fact, there's really no ventilation. It's very dark in this place. There maybe are bugs and rats and vermin of every kind all over the place. In fact, in this prison, your personal comfort is really the least of your worries. Because prisoners here, they find that food, And eating, that that's a rarity. In fact, you are going to receive just enough food to sustain human life, which will in essence prolong your suffering and prolong your punishment. That lack of daily nourishment usually means that prisoners are weak and they are sickly, which means that disease spreads easily and rapidly throughout the prison. Add to that just the exhaustion of daily having to lug around heavy chains, being fettered by the ankles or by the wrists, round the clock, non-stop. Not only does that restrict mobility, but there's also this constant ruckus, the noise of clanging and clacking and creaking that echoes and reverberates through the halls, all caused by those chains. And if you turn and look to one of the guards to try to find some sympathy... Well, you're wasting your time because the guards are unsympathetic. In fact, they are trained to be that way. In fact, sometimes they are just downright cruel to the prisoners. This is an environment of extreme physical and psychological distress. 
the isolation, the despair, the torture, maybe even a better word to describe this than prison cell would be a dungeon. Imagine then that in the center of that scene, that cold, damp, confined space, sits an aged man, gray hair, skin wrinkled, roughly 70 years old, and he is struggling as best he can to catch a few rays of sunlight that are barely peeking in through the prison, the bars of the prison doors, so that he can scribble just a few more words on a leafy piece of parchment. His demeanor is maybe a little less morbid than all of the other prisoners, but there's no doubt about it, this guy, as you look at him, he's been through a lot. There's just a tired and weathered look upon his countenance and it tells the whole story. And the story is this. He's nearing the end of his journey and he knows it. The man in that scene is the Apostle Paul. And that scene, the place, the setting, it is the first century prison in Rome. And the document that Paul is feverishly scribbling on in that lonely prison cell is what will come to be known as the second letter to Timothy. This past week, our Bible reading schedule brought us through the second epistle of Timothy. And I hope you read that. I know that I read that and have been studying that actually for a while now. And I don't know about you, but any time I have ever read second Timothy, and especially on this last go-round, It has just dawned on me that this might very well be the most emotional book in all of the New Testament. Because not only is Paul writing this letter from that kind of setting and those kinds of circumstances, and not only is Paul writing this letter to someone that he considered like a son, like his own beloved son, And not only is Paul writing about things that are critically important to him and his life and who he is, there is one other component that just makes the emotional weight and the gravity of this letter, it takes it to a whole other level. Do you know what that component is? It is the reality and the realization that Paul is about to die. In fact, that's those verses that we just read in chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8. Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure, it is at hand. And while there is some hope at the end of the letter that Paul might see Timothy again, you should know that the truth probably is, eh, he most likely did not see Timothy again. It may have even been the case, but by the time Timothy had received this letter in hand, it may be that Paul had already been executed. Which means then that what we are holding in our hands this morning as we hold 2 Timothy is we are holding the last known letter of the Apostle Paul. And that means that in many ways, it is a letter from the brink of death. These are the final words of a dying man to his closest companion in the faith. What then do you think this letter must have meant to Timothy? You know, when it arrived in the mail on that fateful day, do you think Timothy just just kind of ignored it? You know, just lumped it over there in the pile with all the other junk mail? Do you think Timothy maybe opened it up and just kind of read through it really hurriedly and then just kind of tossed it to the side? Do you think Timothy, when he saw the return address on the letter, went, oh man, 
Paul again? This guy thinks he's my dad. Why is this guy always sending me letters? Do you think that was Timothy's response? If you know anything about the relationship between Paul and Timothy, this protege and mentor relationship, this friendship, this bond that existed between these two men, then you have to know that Timothy opened that letter with great eagerness and anticipation. You have to know that he slowly read it through line by line, carefully by line. You have to imagine he read it through once and then read it through again. And then read it through again and again and again and then kept it and folded it and stored it and put it in a safe place so that he could pull it out and he could return to those words whenever he needed it throughout his life. Do you ever have somebody in your life that maybe wrote you a letter or a card or a note and it was intensely personal and it was very meaningful to you? Maybe a letter from a parent or a grandparent or a teacher or some other influential person in your life that is no longer here. This person is gone now. But every now and then, you pull that letter out. You pull that note out, and you read it. And it gives you the encouragement and the strength and the focus and the determination that you need to just keep on keeping on. You have a letter like that? Well, even if you don't have a letter such as that, this morning you do. Because this morning, I want all of us to be encouraged and to be admonished by this final letter from Paul to Timothy. There is such poignancy and there is such purpose in Paul's writing. Namely, number one, because it is inspired by God. That makes it special and different from every other kind of writing. But number two, it just brims with the kind of clarity of mind that really comes only from being a person who is knocking on death's door, where you are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, you know that your time is up and you now understand, maybe better than anybody else in the world, you understand what really matters in life. You know what? This morning I want to tap into that. I want to tap into Paul's perspective as he was knocking on death's door so that we also can know what really matters in life so that when we reach the end of our earthly journeys, we'll be able to say with confidence what Paul said there in verse 7. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. Let me show you then five things from this letter that I think just admonish us in a big way as Paul writes from death's brink. And that begins back in chapter 1. Would you go back to the very beginning of the letter? Do you remember a moment ago how I said this is a really emotional letter? Well, Paul just has a tendency to just jump right into the emotional stuff right from the get-go. And he does. Look in verse 2 after Paul gives his customary introduction. Verse 2, he says to Timothy, My beloved son, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. 
Here is Paul at the end of his life. And the memory roll just starts going in his head. And he just starts remembering. He just starts remembering all of these wonderful things about his friend Timothy. Like I imagine maybe he thought about the time that he and Timothy first met. Acts chapter 16 records that. They met in the city of Lystra. And then Timothy begins to accompany Paul on his preaching journeys there and in other parts of the world. Paul is thinking about that. Paul's thinking about and reminded of the great faith that Timothy had. And what an encouragement he was to him all throughout the time that he knew him. In fact, by this point, they probably had known each other for the better part of 15 years. In fact, did you notice all the memory language that was found there in those verses? Look at verse 3 again. I constantly remember you. Verse 4, I recall your tears. Verse 5, I am mindful of the sincere faith that is in you. And in all of that, what Paul is demonstrating is he is demonstrating the importance of making great memories. Because memories matter. Paul's saying, I need something to get me through this ordeal. And what is getting me through this ordeal, Timothy, are my memories that you and I built together. The travels that we went on. The things that we talked about together. The work that we accomplished in the service of the Lord. The times that we laughed. The times that we cried. The times that we suffered together. The various things that we experienced together. Those things had a lasting effect on me. And now... At a time in my life when it seems like I am all alone, I realize that I'm not alone, Timothy. Because I have these great memories of you. And I remember our time together. And the truth of the matter is, it wasn't just Timothy that Paul had made all these great memories with. Look down in the text. Look in verse 16 of chapter 1. Paul had lots of people with whom he had very heartening interactions with and great memories with. Verse 16 Paul makes mention here, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. He was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. He came and visited me. I remember that. Verse 18, The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Paul, you're in this wretched and miserable place. What's getting you through this? Paul, don't you know you're about to be killed? Paul, how in the world are you keeping such an optimistic outlook on life? Paul says, I'm just thinking back. I'm just thinking about Onesiphorus. How kind he was to me. I'm thinking about Timothy. And all the great things we did together. I'm thinking about Luke. I'm thinking about Silas. I'm thinking about all these men who traveled with us. I'm thinking about all these good brothers and sisters who served with me and encouraged me all along the way. That's what is driving me forward. And I would just say to you this morning, and I would say to me, make great memories with your brothers and your sisters in the Lord. Serve together. Laugh together. Cry together. Grow together. Talk about the Scriptures together. You know, I I don't know what's going to become of all of us in the future. I don't know if we'll all always be in close geographical proximity, those of us that are members here at Lakeside. I, I don't know that. I don't know what time might do. Time has a way of changing things. Time has a way of separating people. But I do know this. I know that you and I, we will always remember the good times. 
And we will cherish those things. And those memories that we make with God's people, in many ways, those things kind of become like a gift that gets all nice and wrapped up, and they then get tucked away in the back of our minds. And then one day we're able to open them up and unwrap them and enjoy them at a time in our life when we really, really need those memories. Maybe we're going through a trial. Or maybe we are terribly discouraged. And those memories, we open them up and they have a way of just flooding our soul, flooding our mind and flooding our heart. And it provides for us powerful encouragement to keep on persevering. And i got to tell you, i got lots of those kinds of memories. We haven't even been here a full five years. And I've got all kinds of memories like that. I have a memory of me and Doyle Howard and Josh Harris, and a drone, and a 50-foot pole made out of broomsticks and two-by-fours put together with duct tape, and I will treasure that memory for the rest of my life. you have to ask us after service about what that story is. But I'll never forget that. I have memories of the Hales and the Humbles and the Swans being around our dining room table playing cards and playing board games and laughing and cutting up even into the wee hours of the night. I can remember three years ago a phone call that I got from Stuart Spillman at a time when I really needed a phone call like that. And I'll not soon forget that. And I can recall afternoons of being at Miss Gertrude's house and sitting at her puzzle table and helping her make those thousand-piece jigsaw puzzles, putting all those together. I'm not going to forget that. And I could just go right on down the list with practically everybody in this room some kind of memory or memories But you get the idea. Our time together, both in and outside of these assemblies, our conversations, our labors together within this community, those things are able to create a permanent memory imprint in the minds of each and every one of us, and we are then able to use those memories in our service unto the Lord. Make great memories with the family of God. And one of the ways that really you can do that is by being spiritually strong. By having a spiritual fire that burns strongly and brightly, you do that, you're not going to be forgotten. You know, I hope that wherever life takes me, if I'm here for many more years, or if life takes me somewhere, I hope that wherever I am, and wherever I preach, and in my work, and in my life, and in my service unto the Lord, my hope is, is that the way that I do those things, that it will stoke and fan a flame of influence, so much so that people just cannot forget me. That's the kind of indelible imprint that I want to leave on this world. And in fact, that is what Paul wanted for his young brother Timothy. Would you notice down in verse 6? In verse 6, chapter 1, continue on, verse 6, Paul says, For this reason, I am reminding you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Paul says, Timothy, you've done so many great things for God, but you need to be mindful that if you are not careful, that grand flame it can very much dwindle down to just a tiny little flicker. And in fact, the devil, when he sees somebody's flame just barely flickering, all he's got to do is come along and exhale, and and the flame is extinguished. And so what does Paul say to do about that? Well, secondly, Paul says you need to rekindle that flame. 
Verse 6 again. Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. And I'm here to tell you that if Paul saw that there was potential danger in Timothy's flame running low, here's a guy who, I'll remind you, the gift that's being described here is most likely the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is literally endowed with special powers from the Holy Spirit. And Paul is concerned that Timothy is going to let his own cowardice and fear and passiveness overtake him and extinguish that flame. If that could happen with Timothy... What makes us think that that can't happen with one of us? We can allow our flame to grow dim. We can allow the spirit of timidity to cripple our influence. We can allow our gifts that we have been given by God to just be absolutely squandered. In fact, Paul was painfully aware of that reality. Not in Timothy's life, but in the lives of others. Because there were other fellow workers that Paul had encountered throughout his journeys who had succumbed to that very temptation. Would you jump over to chapter 4 again? In chapter 4, do you remember that fellow by the name of Demas? Here's a man who once was full of faithfulness and commitment. Paul spoke highly of him during his first Roman imprisonment. But now in chapter 4 and verse 10, during this second imprisonment, Paul says, for Demas, chapter 4 verse 10, Demas, having loved this present world has deserted me. He's gone to Thessalonica. Come on, Demas. What's the deal, Demas? What happened there? All that great work that you had done for the Lord, all the service that you had rendered to Paul, all of that great stuff that you had done once upon a time, but now you've let the flame get low and the devil's just extinguished it entirely. And that is exactly the danger for us too. And that is why we must regularly be examining ourselves and re-examining ourselves and re-evaluating ourselves and doing that kind of serious introspection about our spiritual fire and where that level is. And then what we need to do is we need to rekindle those gifts. And what that means is, very practically speaking, that means you need to figure out what your gift is. You need to figure out what your niche is. You need to figure out what it is that you can do in the service of the Lord and then you need to start fanning that flame. You need to start stirring those coals. You need to start putting those gifts to work. I'm reminded of Romans the 12th chapter where Paul talks there about how in the body of Christ we all have differing gifts but that each one of us needs to exercise our gifts accordingly. In Romans chapter 12 and verses 6 and 7 and 8 Paul just enumerates a whole bunch of just different kinds of areas where God's people have been gifted. And Paul just simply wants to know, well, what's your thing? What is it that you can do? What area are you particularly good at? What talent and ability has God blessed you with? Paul asks there in verse 7, are you a servant? Then you need to exercise that gift in serving. Are you a teacher? Are you adapt and able to teach? Then you need to be involved in teaching. Are you one of those people that just knows how to you know, bring a smile to people's faces? Are you an exhorter? Then you need to get busy in exhortation. Do you have the ability to give? Do you have the means to give of your time or to give of your money in order to, to help others? Then Paul says you need to give. You need to give with liberality. Are you a leader? He says be diligent in that. Are you able to show mercy and compassion? If so, do that with cheerfulness. Whatever it is, you find what you can do 
Whatever it is that you can do great for God, and then you know what you, you, know what you do next? Then you just constantly fan that flame so that it can be even greater. You can do even greater things in that arena. Don't let your flame grow dim. Don't be a Demas, Paul says. Rather, you fan that flame, you stoke it, you let it burn brightly for the Lord. Go back to chapter 1. In verse 8, after telling Timothy here, hey, we're not going to let fear and we're not going to let cowardice rule the day, he says, therefore, verse 8, never, ever be ashamed. Verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Paul says, Timothy, don't you ever, ever be ashamed of being a Christian. Don't you ever be ashamed of your Lord and your Savior Jesus Christ. Don't you ever be ashamed of the Gospel and its message. Never hide it. Never consider it as less than what it really is. Never be silent about it because in the end, in the end, the gospel is the only thing that matters. It is, verse 9, it is what saves us. It is, verse 10, what brings life and immortality. It is what makes us who we are, isn't it? Those of us that have assembled today as children of God, doesn't the gospel, isn't that what makes us who we are today? Young people, I need you to really pay attention here this point about being ashamed. Paul's writing to a young guy or a youngish guy, and I think this is especially relevant for young people today. Nothing, not a single thing in this life, not a single accomplishment that you might achieve, not a single person that you might meet, not a single relationship that you might forge, none of those things is as valuable as this message. In fact, Paul loudly proclaims that about himself in the very next verse. Look in verse 12. Paul says, I'm never going to be ashamed. Even with the sentence and the stink of death hanging over my head, the gospel's worth suffering for. In fact, the gospel's worth dying for. Verse 12, Paul says, For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. Would you please do me a favor? The next time that we sing that song that is inspired by verse 12, would you please pause and think about where that words and that language came from? That it came from the pen of a 70-something-year-old man who was on the brink and on the edge of death, and he was writing these last words to a young man who he believed needed to be reminded, don't be ashamed. Now this actually begs the question, in fact, I used to ask this quite often when I was younger, this idea of being ashamed. Well, have you ever wondered, how exactly is a person ashamed of the gospel? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about... What would that look like for a person to be ashamed of Jesus 
and of the gospel. You know, right now, all of us, we read these verses about don't be ashamed, and all of us will probably just say loudly and proudly, yeah, I'll never be ashamed of the gospel. Well, congratulations, but how would you know whether or not you're doing that? Well, would you look over in chapter 2? In chapter 2, I actually think Paul shows us how it is that you can go about being ashamed of the gospel. And right here is maybe just a good litmus test for all of us to just kind of go through this and kind of do some checking off and figuring out, well, am I ashamed or am I not ashamed? Look, for example, at verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, "...the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also." You want to know how to be ashamed of the gospel? Here it is. Don't teach others. Don't share the truth of this message. Don't share it with the other people that you encounter and the people that you know in your daily life. You do that and you'll be ashamed of the gospel. You will be very successful at being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it doesn't stop there. Look in verse 3. Paul uses another metaphor. He says, suffer a hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. You want to know how to be ashamed of the gospel? Then whenever Christianity gets hard, when the going gets tough, just stop fighting. Just cave in. Just do what's best for you. And don't worry about your commanding general who enlisted you for battle in the first place. No, you just do what's best for you. You do that, you'll be successful at being ashamed of the gospel. Verse 5, another metaphor. Paul says also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. You want to know how to be ashamed of the gospel? Then just take the Lord's rules and bend them. Break them. Modify them so that they better suit you. You do that and you'll be ashamed of the gospel. Verse 6, the hardworking farmer. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. You want to know how to be ashamed of the gospel? Then don't be like the farmer. Don't invest the time and the energy and the patience that it takes to plant and to sow and to water and to nourish and to bear fruit, spiritual fruit for the Lord. Don't do that. Just Instead, just, just do nothing. In fact, that's really all that it takes to be ashamed of the gospel. You realize that, don't you? Just... Just do what you're doing right now. Do nothing. Yeah, sure, come to church and stuff. Yeah, yeah of course we got to do that. got to come to church, I guess. But, but don't do anything else. Don't sacrifice. Don't teach. Don't endure hardship. Don't uh, compete according to the rules. Don't put forth any kind of real substantive effort. Paul says, he says it loudly and clearly to Timothy. He says, don't... Be ashamed of who you are. The gospel is so much more valuable than that. Don't get to the end of your life and you're burdened in your mind about all the things that you didn't do. Instead, be that teacher. Be that soldier. Be that athlete. Be that farmer. Be be a Christian. And the one who is being all of those things, that person will never be ashamed. And you know, a huge part being able to make all of that work, is by building a very rock-solid and concrete relationship between me and this book, 
the Word of God. Go back to chapter 1 again. In chapter 1, notice how some of these ideas start to tie together now. Verse 13, verse 13, Paul says, Retain the standard of sound words. Other translations use the word pattern. I like that word a lot. Follow the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. In these verses, Paul is speaking of the Scriptures. He is speaking of the Word of God. The pattern of sound words that have been entrusted to Timothy. And Paul refers to it in some translations as a good deposit. But I really especially like the New American Standard rendering that it is a treasure, and it is a treasure that must be guarded. And I think, I'm taking that quite literally. That I'm taking the Word of God, and I'm holding it close to me. I'm holding it close to my heart. And I'm making it part of me and who I am and what I'm all about. And really, it ought to be rather obvious to us as to why Paul would say such a thing, to guard this treasure. Because whenever I start to pull myself away from the revealed Word of God, whenever I start putting some distance between me and the Scriptures, then just a series of really bad things starts to occur in my life. For example, when I start distancing myself from God's Word, then I start to become ashamed of my Christianity. Because I'm not able to defend it. I start becoming embarrassed by it. And it's not something that I am able to even talk about. Then as I become even more distanced from God's Word, how exactly how exactly is my gift working? It's probably not going to be working very good at all. My flame is not going to be making much of a dent and an impression and a difference in this world. My fire won't be burning brightly. The further you get away from God's Word, then the dimmer your flame is going to get. And then, of course, what kind of an imprint, what kind of a lasting memory is that leaving on my fellow brothers and sisters? Probably not very good memories. Probably not very good thoughts and images. Not very strong relationships with the family of God. My relationship with them is being weakened. And the memories that are being created are bad and awful. You see, you can tie everything that Paul says in chapter 1 right here to verses 13 and 14 where he says, Timothy, guard that treasure. You need to keep that book close to your heart. And you need to be always pursuing an ever closer relationship to God and His Word. Now I realize even as I say that, that there are people sitting in this auditorium right now who are saying to themselves, Josh, I know the Bible. I do. I know it inside and out. I've been around the Bible practically my whole life. But you know what? Sometimes what I fear is, is I fear that people's knowledge of the Bible is maybe more conceptual than actual. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's kind of like, I know that I know it. In my mind, I have this really great connection with God. And I have this terrific connection with His Word. And Man, I'm just all about the Word of God. But then when it comes down to actual time spent in the Word, and when it comes to what I actually can know and recite and memorize from the Word, and when it comes to actually seeing how it all fits together and it's all unified, well, well, I thought that I knew it, but I... I guess I don't actually know it. That's why Paul says, 
You need to guard that treasure. It is the very pattern by which we build our lives. It contains the ultimate knowledge, not just for the now, but for the hereafter. And you know, throughout this letter, Paul just repeatedly beats that drum. Maybe most famously in chapter 2 and in verse 15. In chapter 2 and verse 15, he says, Be diligent. The old King James translation says, Study to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Did you see the connection there between not being ashamed and your relationship to the Word? The more I read this book, the more I study this book, the more I memorize this book, the more I discuss this book, then the less cause that I'll have to ever be ashamed of it. Because I have this book and its Word abiding in my heart. In chapter 4, Paul takes that a step further. In chapter 4, Paul even says that guarding this treasure... It is so important because a time is coming, and I'm going to suggest to you that that time is now, when people are not going to just want the treasure as it is. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound, healthy doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. Now I know lots of times folks read those verses, preachers read those verses, And they stand up and they start railing against all of the false teachers of the world. I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm not going to stand up here and rail against guys who do what verse 4 is talking about. And the reason I'm not going to do that is because I can't do anything about them. False teachers are going to do what they're going to do. But what I can do is I can address this local body. I can address this church. I can address the individual Christians who are sitting in this room right now. And I can urge you to think about your relationship to the Word of God so that you are not turned aside to myths. And so that you and this entire church is not led away from the truth. You you want to ensure, those of you that are members here at Lakeside, you want to ensure the future of this congregation for years to come, then it can't always just be about who it is that's standing behind this piece of wood. It has to also be about the people who are out there listening to the guy standing behind the piece of wood and about what these people out here expect and demand in the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. That means then that you have to strengthen your relationship with the Scriptures. Guard that treasure because in the day of judgment, there's really only going to be one thing standing between you and Jesus. And it's going to be this book. John 12, verse 48, Jesus says we're going to be judged by these words. We need to guard this treasure. Finally then this morning, as you turn back to chapter 1, would you notice in verse 15... In verse 15, as Paul is isolated in this wretched place, his loneliness, I think, is maybe most evident right here as he says these words in verse 15. In verse 15, Paul says, You are aware of the fact 
that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Paul says, these men, these men that I thought are going to be with me, these men who said they were going to stand beside me, these men who said they would be with me right down there in the trenches, and even in difficult times, I turned around and they were nowhere to be found. They were gone. They left me. Just like Demas, they deserted me. And what Paul wants Timothy to know is, you know what, there may come a time when that's what happens to you, Timothy. There may be a moment in time in your Christianity when you are all by yourself, and so what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to build personal faith. You're going to need to work on your faith, individual faith. You know, this morning I was thinking about what a, what a great group of people make up this congregation. And I think about all the great things that happen whenever we gather together in this auditorium to worship, whenever we come together in our respective classes to study the Bible. What a great support system that we have here at Lakeside. And all of that is, man, that's just all wonderful. And we are so blessed in a great way. And you know, Paul had that too, at least once upon a time he had it. There were times when all of his closest brethren, they were right there. They were talking about the work of the Lord. They were going about establishing churches and baptizing people and all kinds of great things. But you know what? Just like Paul, there's also going to be times when none of those people, when none of these people are going to be right there around you. That might be when you're in the workplace. That might be on the street where you live in your neighborhood. That might be in a family situation where the only person in the entire room that even cares about God is you. You're going to be all alone. And so what you're going to need is you're going to need a personal faith. You're going to need a strong, robust, individual faith. And that is exactly why Paul continues on in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, you therefore... You realize what the word therefore is therefore, don't you? Paul says, since I know what it's like to be deserted, to be left all alone, to be left with no support, you therefore, my son, you be strong. You be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul says you build a strong faith because when you do that, you will realize that you are never, ever all alone. Because part of being a faithful Christian is realizing that the smallest number of people who will ever be on your side is two. There will always be you and there will always be Jesus. Even if there is no other human being around, even if the people that you thought were on your side and on your team, they turn out to be a bunch of hypocrites, a bunch of fakes, a bunch of pretenders, it's still going to be you and Jesus. And it will always be. As long as you are seeking to be strong in Christ. Learn of Him. Talk with Him. Get to know Him. Build your faith in Him. Look finally at chapter 4. In chapter 4, you know, it is great to have Christian friends and to have family members that are Christians. It's great to have a local church. It's great to have all these people around us who love the Lord and they want to do what's right. But you know what? We may not always have that. 
And if that be the case, then we want to pay particular attention to Paul's words here in chapter 4 and verse 16. Paul says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Verse 17, But the Lord, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is exactly where you and I need to get in our faith. That even when it might look like it's just our darkest and bleakest hour, the Lord stood with me. The Lord made me strong. The Lord made it possible for me to accomplish His work. The Lord is the one who rescues me and delivers me and brings me safely home. We need a faith that, yes, it's going to thrive when we're together, but we also need a faith that's going to be able to stand strong even when we're not together. That is Paul's message to Timothy. And that is Paul's message to us today. You know, you think about nearing the end of your life and trying kind of at the, at the last minute, trying to organize your thoughts and trying to write a letter to your child. And you want to make sure in that letter that you include all of the, all the most pertinent information, all of the most necessary wisdom that they're going to need to be able to, to make it through life and navigate their way through this dark world. Of all the hundred things that might go through your mind as being really important and as being really needful and as being, you know, what really, really matters, out of those hundred things, in the end, probably about 95 of them are going to be revealed to be vain and empty and pretty meaningless and not of any real substance. Because when we do reach the end of our lives, The only things that are really going to matter, at least to the Christian, are going to be these five things on the screen behind me. The relationships that I have built and the courage that I have drawn from those relationships. The way that I have exercised my gifts and multiplied my talents in the service of the Lord. The times that I spoke the will of God and I was not ashamed. And in doing so, as I confessed the name of Jesus, I was ensuring that Jesus would confess me before His heavenly Father. The hours that I spent reading and rereading and re-re-re-reading the Bible, all these pages of heavenly instruction and wisdom, and the time that I spent personally in building my faith, not my family's faith, Not mom and daddy's faith, not grandma and granddaddy's faith, not the church's faith, but my faith so that it could withstand the tempest blows. These, these are the things that are only going to matter when everything else has lost its value. And so may I just ask you very bluntly this morning, is this a description of the kinds of things that mean the very most to you? In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing the song that's been selected as an invitation song. It's song number 350. I know whom I have believed. And that is taken right out of those verses we just read. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. The question is going to be, can you make the words of this song your very own this morning?
Have you believed? Have you trusted? Have you obeyed Jesus? Have you committed your soul to Him in the waters of baptism? Furthermore, are you living for Him, living for Him daily? Confident that at any moment, if you were to die or if the Lord would return, Jesus, Jesus is going to take me home. I know that. I am sure of that. I am persuaded of that. If there is any doubt in your mind about any of those things, if there is doubt in your mind that you are not saved, if there is doubt in your mind that you have fallen away from the Lord, then this is the time to get that corrected. And we stand ready to assist you in immersing you into Jesus Christ or praying for you and encouraging you as an erring child of God. Whatever your need might be, would you come forward and make those wishes known? Do that while we stand and while we sing.